I'm going to be preaching out of an obscure book. It's one of the books that, you know, for middle schoolers, you ask them, is this in the Bible? And they're like, not sure. Um, Second Kings, you know, what, what happened in First Kings? I don't know. But in Second Kings, um, we're running into this leader named Josiah. And I figured I should give you some background because there's a lot of people who don't really know where Josiah falls. And I would have fallen into, the, into that camp. I grew up in the church. 20 years I spent uh, in the Evangelical Covenant Church, which is a church that our first affirmation is that the Old and New Testament is the, the Word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine, and conduct. So you'd think I would have known some things about the Bible. But even I didn't know from 20 years of Sunday school who exactly Josiah was and where he fell. And so it's important for you to understand context to know where Josiah falls in the story. So if I go back, I'm not going to go all the way back to Genesis, Adam, and Eve. I'm going to go start in Exodus. So uh, after the people come out of slavery in Egypt, Moses leads them out of slavery. They're told there's going to be a land that you're going to inhabit. And there's some road bumps, so they don't do it for a while. But eventually, under a leader named Joshua, they inhabit this land called Canaan. And uh, almost immediately during that time, they realize that they're not very good at governing themselves. And so they start to ask, Lord, can we have a king? 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 And eventually God says, okay, you asked for it, which is often God's way of saying, you're idiots, but I'm going to help you. Um, And they get Saul. And y'all know Saul, he wasn't perfect. He had some problems, especially the whole like being terrified of his successor thing. And so he uh, is eventually stripped of his power, but he stays around anyway until eventually he dies and David ascends to the throne. And David, he's a big character in the Bible. You've heard about him. He likes to throw stones at people, right? Like he's a a big character in the Bible, but uh, he's a great king, but he's flawed like all of us. And so then after David comes Solomon. And he also, the, the, the people realize that they're really not very good at governing even with a king. They thought that would solve their problems, but they were wrong. And so they kind of went through a civil war and they split up. The South Kingdom and the North Kingdom were divided. Imagine if the civil war happened and actually the secession was victorious, that the Confederacy actually seceded from the Union. That's what happened during that time period. That's recorded in the book of 1 Kings. And then one of the, the, the main kind of province, Judea, they go through a line of kings. That's why it's called the book of kings, not king. They go through a line of kings, and they're, by and large, terrible. That's just the truth. Almost every single one of them, you read something to the effect of, and they did wicked in the eyes of the Lord, and their descendants did just like them. And one king was okay in the middle of that. That's, his name was Hezekiah, and he has a great story too. He defends the, the, the people from the Assyrian onslaught. But eventually... God decides, without telling anyone in particular at first, they're done. I've had it. They, I need to strip their power and privilege away because they've done nothing with it. They're actually much worse than they were at the beginning. Like they thought it was bad in the desert, but they're even worse now. That they have successfully actually completely broken away from me that they've totally forsaken my promise to them that I would be their God if they would only be my people. And so he says, I'm going to take it all away. And in the midst of this, we have the second good king arise, and his name is Josiah. And that's where you find yourself in Scripture. When we go to 2 Kings 22, you're in the middle of this huge story, and the end of the story is Jesus, and that's great, and he's a great king. 
although he's not exactly what they expected. But Josiah falls right in the middle. He's, he's dealt a really bad hand. He doesn't have a lot of good things going for him. He's had a lot of bad kings before him, and it's about to end. But he is a beacon of hope in the middle. And so as we're talking about being raised to life through this process, raised to life at our church, and I know that's the, the spirit of Easter. I'm sure that Fellowship Bible, you've been talking about some of the, some of the same things, being raised to life with Christ. Josiah actually embodies this even before Jesus. And the reason I love Josiah is the way in which he comes to this conclusion. So I'm going to jump into the scriptures here. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, which is not a literal translation, but it really helps you get into the story. So if you want to go to your NRSV or your KJV after this, that's fine. Um, but for me, the best, Bible that you read, or the best Bible that you have is the one that you read. And this is the one that I was reading this week. So... Uh, 2 Kings 22, if you have a Bible with me, you can turn with me. I'm going to cut it up into kind of three sections. We're going to go through all of 2 Kings 22. Josiah was eight years old when he became king. Imagine that. Yikes. But anyway, he reigned in Jerusalem for 31 years. His mother was Jedidiah and his daughter Adea and from Bozkath. These names are going to be butchered. I'm sorry, but I'm just going with it. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from what the Lord was doing, or from, he did not turn away from doing what was right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azalea, and grandson of Mesumalan, ma'am, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. He told them, go to Hilakai, the high priest, and have him count the money of the gatekeep- that the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple and entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay the workers to, repay, to, to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters and builders and masons and also have them buy the timber and the finished stone that's needed to repair the temple but don't require the construction supervisor to keep an account of the money that they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. The first thing that you have to realize about Josiah is that Josiah represents a reorientation from the kings before him. I want you to notice here that Josiah has not uh, done anything that's profoundly, he's not received anything profoundly different from the Lord. We haven't heard that Josiah had a great biblical advisor. Josiah doesn't have a prophet right now telling him what to do. Josiah hasn't yet been convicted by the words of scripture, which he's going to be in a moment. Josiah actually starts with a reorientation. Josiah starts with a reorientation. He actually goes into his reign and goes, you know what? I'm going to care about something that people haven't cared about before. I'm going to care about the temple. And that's an important starting point for us to realize this morning. Because if you don't start here, you're not going to understand what Josiah did next. Josiah is is a symbol of reorientation for us. Of what it looks like to say, hey, this is what I've inherited. And I'm going to make a change now to my priorities. See, Josiah could have easily said, look, this is going to be business as usual. He didn't need to go to their primary tax source, which was the gatekeepers of Jerusalem. He didn't need to go to their primary tax source and take the money and use it for something religious. See, he could have done a lot with that money. He could have taken that money and used it to build a bigger temple for himself 
or a bigger house for himself. He could have bought some uh, concubines like his ancestor Solomon did. He could have used it to bolster their military because during this time, they're still fighting with people. You're going to hear that the Babylonians are coming. He could have used the money for a whole host of things. His orientation is, okay, God first. I don't even know what that means yet, says Josiah. I don't even know what that means, God first. But I can see the physical monument to God, the physical connection point with God. I'm going to repair that. I'm going to worry about that. And I want you to notice that he doesn't even, what it says, he doesn't even take uh, account of the, the money that he's giving to the builders. He really doesn't care how much it costs. He's not like the budget for the temple renovation is 500 denarii or whatever. That's a New Testament. He doesn't say that. And by the way, if you get to the end of that, I want you to stop work for six months. He was not an employee of the uh, Illinois Department of Transportation, right? Like he did not just stop the renovation because they ran out of money. He said it doesn't matter how much. It doesn't matter what the cost. I w this is our primary purpose for being here is to be with Yahweh. And so as we read on, it's important to remember that that's his starting point. And perhaps that needs to be our starting point. But I'm not going to get into that quite yet. We'll go on to the next slide with scriptures. So remember, he's going to send out this guy, Hilkai. He's going to, Hilkai is going to, or Hilkai is going to, going to do this job that he's assigned the, to him the task. So Hilkai, the high priest, said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I found a book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan to read it. Saphon went to the king and reported, your officials have turned over the money collected to the temple, at the temple of the Lord to the workers and the supervisors at the temple. Saphon also told the king, Hilakiah, the priest, has given me a scroll. So Saphon read it to the king. When this king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. And then he gave these orders to Hilakiah the priest, Achillam the son of Saphon, uh, Akbor the son of Milakiah, Saphon the court secretary, and Esaiah the king's personal advisor. That's just a whole group of people who have power. He gives it to all of them. He says, go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people of Judah. Inquire about the words written on the scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us and our ancestors, because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in the scroll. We have not been doing everything it says that we must do. The, first, the second thing that you have to realize here is that Josiah's response is directly tied to his reorientation. So he goes, he sends out these advisors, and there's a lot of names, so I'll just summarize it for you. He sends out these advisors, he says, hey, look, all of you guys, th this is important, you have to go do this temple renovation. And during the renovation, they find a scroll, and they go, hey, this scroll might be interesting to the king. So they read it to the king, and the king goes, oh, no, 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 we have been doing this all wrong. We're totally off base. So go back read it to everyone, be transparent about what it says, because God is about to be angry. I want you to hear that Josiah, in that moment, has a decision when that scroll is found. He has a decision. He can do one of two things. He can either bury it or disregard it like all of the kings prior to him have done, or he can change with it. And Josiah, he values transparency. He, he values accountability. That's biblical. 
He says, look, I can't be the only one who knows about this because I might screw it up. Let's tell everybody what it says. Let's let everybody knows what, know what it says because that's important. I don't know how many of you have ever, I mean, like this is, this is a story right out of HGTV, right? Like they opened up the walls and they found something there that they weren't expecting to find. My, my good friend Colby, he's a uh, pastor over at Hinsdale Covenant Church. He just bought a house that was built in like 1915, 1916, 1912, I don't know, something around there. And when they ripped out the drywall on the exterior walls, uh, it was during a time when they used to use newspaper to insulate the, the structure. And so they found all these newspaper clippings from World War I. Imagine if, see, we have a record of those things, so we know what those things said. Imagine if you hadn't even known that there was a great war. If you hadn't even known what, what, what the history had been, that God had actually already given you, laid down the, the, the commandments for you to follow. He's, he's mad. He's like, why didn't anybody tell me this? He tears his clothes. He goes, I, I'm so upset about this that I, I, my response has to equal the, the brutalness of what I just learned. That's the second thing that we have to realize about Josiah this morning is that Josiah's response is reactive because the thing, when he's given two options, the thing, the, the lesser of the two options would be to bury it. And he goes, no, no, no. His response matters. So then we go on in the story and we hear what he does next. So he's mad, but he hasn't done anything yet. He's just upset. He's had it read to everybody and he goes, okay, now I got to figure out what to do with this. We have not been doing everything that it says that we must do. So Hilkiah, the priest, Akim, Akbor, Saphan, Isaiah, all of them, the advisors again, went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with a prophet, Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Harhas, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. In fact, I have heard something. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the, king, uh, that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, and I am very angry with them for everything that they have done. My anger will burn against his place, this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning in the message that you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord. And when you heard that what I had said against the city and its people and this land would be cursed and become desolate, you tore your clothing in despair. You wept for, uh, to me, before me in repentance. And indeed I have heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send this promised disaster until after you've died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring in the city. So they took the message back to the king. He says, look, he's been reoriented. He's had his response. But then he goes, look, I can't trust my advisors anymore. I can't trust the high priest anymore. I got to go to the outskirts of town to find somebody who might still be faithful to tell me the truth about all this. And so he goes to the last place that you'd ever think to find truth. He goes to Huldah, a prophetess, not even a prophet, a woman who has a good word for him. And it's this, 
look, you're right. It's going to be rough. And he goes to the new quarter of Jerusalem, not the place where all of the high priests live next to the, around the temple. He has to go to the new part of town where those riffraff live. He can't go to the people who go into the temple. He has to go to the people who care for their clothing. Because he says, if there's cancer at the top, I got to keep cutting down until I find where it ain't. And so he goes to Huldah. He says, I bl- I'm going to trust what you're going to say to me. And Huldah tells him, hey, look, you're kind of out of luck. You've done the best you can, but ultimately, it's too late. Everything that you said, you read, was going to come true, still going to come true. It's not going to matter. But because you were sorry, you're going to avoid it. You personally are going to be saved out of it. You're going to be rescued. You won't have to see it. And what's important to note here is that it doesn't change Josiah's response to what he's been told. His personal salvation guarantee does not change how he reacts. Josiah, in in chapter 23, I could go on and on, but Josiah institutes reforms that are uh, hereto unprecedented in the biblical text. He goes, here's just a couple things. He takes all the idols out of the temple. I want you to hear that when people went to the temple, they thought they were worshiping God when they worshiped those idols. So he goes in and he goes, hey, look, we've been reading this wrong, so I'm going to go pull down all this stuff that's in contradiction to what I'm seeing here. Even though the religious leaders have told me this is what Judaism looks like, this is what Yahweh worship looks like, I'm going to go back to the text, and this stuff doesn't belong here. It doesn't matter what you've told me. And then the next thing he does is he goes to the shrine prostitutes. Where it talks about, if you read uh, chapter 23, it talks about him tearing down the Asherah poles and destroying the, 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 the shacks that the prostitutes lived in. He, he literally goes to the places and he goes, I'm going to completely obliterate the sites where these things happen. And I'm not going to blame, notice what he says he, later in chapter 23, he says, I'm not going to blame the people who have been oppressed by the system the women who have been sold into these shrine prostitute situations, I'm not going to blame them for being part of a broken system, but I'm going to break the system because the system's broken. And then the next thing he does is he goes to the, 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 uh, the place where they are committing child sacrifice, Ben-Himon, who Jesus calls it Gehenna in the New Testament, and he completely destroys the altar where they are sacrificing their children. He, he systematically goes through all of the problems that Israel had with their worship and he deconstructs each one of them in chapter 23. And it's important to note what he does because it, he still doesn't, Jerusalem does fall. If you read the book of uh, uh, Jeremiah and then the Jeremiah part two, also we call Lamentations. If you read those books, you learn that Jerusalem, it still falls. It's still destroyed by the Babylonians. They don't make it out. The story isn't changed by what Josiah does. And so I think a lot of us would look at that story, would look at this whole story and go, okay, so great. So, so what does that mean for us? Right? Josiah doesn't, he doesn't prevent the coming doom. So who, what does it matter what he did? It matters. It matters because the story would not be in the biblical text if it didn't matter. A lot of people say, is everything in the Bible there for a purpose? Absolutely. All Scripture, Timothy says, is good for preaching and teaching and correction. 
And when Timothy says that, he's not talking about the New Testament. It wasn't written yet. He's talking about the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is good for teaching, preaching, and correction. And so when we see Josiah's reforms, we see a mirror image of what it should look like to be raised to life. So here are your three takeaways this morning as I kind of conclude and wrap up because I think it's important as we read these stories and and many people you've probably heard the story of Josiah before maybe you haven't heard it as the whole uh, like a whole sermon on it or something it's kind of an obscure story it doesn't necessarily bode as a good news story but it's important to place ourselves in the biblical narrative and realize what it's calling us to and so here's the first one we have to go to text the text with ears to hear what it's saying I want you to know that Josiah was not the first king to be told what the law of God was. That actually the law of God was available to him. That the reason that the scrolls were buried in the walls or whatever, wherever they found them, buried in a closet somewhere in the children's ministry corner, the reason that the scrolls were buried there was because they had stopped reading them, not because they had lost them. You don't lose sacred texts if they're sacred. If I only had one Bible for this whole church, I'd bring it with me everywhere I went and guard it with my life. The reason that I lose pens is because I have too many of them. This is the truth. They had disregarded Scripture because they had decided that they weren't going to follow it a long time ago. And so it wasn't like he was the first one that had ever heard this news, that from the time of David that the scriptures had been lost. No, they had chosen to hear them and not do anything about it. There had been a succession of kings who had done wicked in the eyes of the Lord, not through ignorance, but through indifference. And Josiah, he's the one who's ignorant because we see that his orientation is changed before he even receives the scriptures. So we have to be willing to go to the text knowing that it might change our perspective. It might shake your world. It might wreck your kingdom. It might mean spending a lot of money on whatever. It might mean messiness. Because that's the story of Josiah. I don't think that if Josiah had not been the type of person who cared for the temple, that he would have been the type of person who cared when he found a scripture that was in contradiction to where he lives. I think that a lot of us believe, and rightfully so, the words of scripture have great, great power. But Jesus also says often in the New Testament, you know what? If you don't have hears, you won't hear what I'm saying. And that's not reading a book that's 2,000 years old. That was old. That was literally listening to the living God preach a sermon. And he said a lot of people just still didn't hear it because they didn't have ears to hear it. Are we that church today? Are we a church that's so sure about what the Bible says that we're not willing to go back to it and go, hey, maybe we were completely wrong? Because understand that temple worship, it didn't stop. It just changed over time. That when Josiah took over, they thought they were worshiping God. They still told the stories of David. They still honored Yahweh. But they had been so disconnected from their historical relationship with God that that worship had become complete and utter idolatry. And so if we're not willing to go back to the text and go, hey, look, maybe we're getting this wrong. Maybe there are problems with what we're saying. 
maybe we're not hearing this correctly, then we're never going to have an opportunity to change. And so Josiah goes that way. He goes to the text. When he receives the text, he already has ears. I wonder for a moment if we think about Paul's use of the temple in the New Testament and he talks about there is no physical temple anymore. Now it's just the body of Christ and we're all parts of the body of Christ. We are the temple, all Christians. I wonder what it looks like to say, maybe there are people who need to care for the body of Christ before they're going to be convicted by the words of Scripture. There are many people who are waiting to be called and they probably should just start doing something because until they have their heart broken for the world, Scripture's not going to convict. I didn't care about homeless people, no matter what Jesus said about homeless people, until I met a lot of Christian homeless people. And by the way, almost every single person that we meet through Love, Inc., they're faithful. Are we caring for the temple? Perhaps that's the problem. We have ceased to care about the temple, and when we cease to care about the temple, we lose our ears to hear. Second takeaway this morning, we must be willing to lament and repent when we are convicted about hard things. That's the story of Josiah. He goes, I'm wrong. How many leaders do we have today that go, I'm wrong? (laughs) I hope church leaders, but not many others. Doesn't matter where you fall. We have to have leaders who are willing to go, hey, so I've been screwing up. This isn't good. Let's change. Lament and repent. One you cannot have without the other. You got to be willing to look at, see, a lot of us, Midwestern culture teaches when you find out that you've done something wrong, fix it. I think a lot of us skip a step. When you find out that you did something wrong, tear your clothes. You got to feel it because otherwise you're just trying to fix it and erase it. Lament before you repent because otherwise your repentance is just works theology, fixing it for yourself. See, I think that Josiah, he fall, there's two types of sin that are talked about in the Old Testament. There's sin that is wickedness and sin that is missing the mark. Josiah didn't know what he was doing was wrong. He learned over time that he was missing the mark. Let me give you an example of the difference. When you see, a, after a rain like this, when you see a puddle on the side of the road and then somebody standing next to that puddle waiting for a bus, and you're driving down the road and you decide to swerve into that puddle... That's wickedness. You knew what you shouldn't have been doing, and you did it anyway. Now, if you find yourself driving down 143rd, and there's water on the pavement, and at the moment that you're driving with your crossover through that water over the pavement, there's also another guy in a BMW convertible driving the other direction, and you don't see him because he's hiding behind another car, and all of a sudden a wave of water enters his BMW, that's just missing the mark. And that happened to me yesterday. <laughs> but that was sin. If I didn't feel bad about that, because, well, how would I have known that he was there? Well, why didn't he? You know, all the things that my culture has taught me, they flash through my mind real quick. Well, how was I supposed to know he was there? Shouldn't have been following so close. Why did he have his top down? Clearly it's raining. That car is too low to the ground to be driving through this water. 
If I had a car like that, I wouldn't even take it out on days like this. You know what? Whatever he did to earn that car, he probably hates poor people. I went through all of them. But the truth is what I needed to feel was like, man, that was accidentally probably one of the worst things I've done in a while. And, and that's what Josiah, that, that tearing of your clothes, that comes before repentance. Because if you repent first, before you lament, it's just works theology. Remember that God doesn't say, I'm happy with you for your reforms. He says, I'm happy with you for your lament. That's what's pleasing to the Almighty God. Not what your little ant person can do. Not how big you can build your ant hole of goodness. God cares about heart change. Saying, no, 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 no. This, this mess that I have been a part of, not even that I made, but that I've been a part of, I wonder how many times we need to lament as a culture over things that we've done. Ways that we've failed to care for the least of these. And you might say, well, that's not me. I do my part. But Josiah, he was doing his part. And it still drove him to his knees, tearing out his hair over the injustice that was child sacrifice and ritual prostitution of 12-year-old girls and idolatry in the temple and capitalizing on people for monetary gain. We must be willing to lament, yes, and repent when we're convicted about hard things. The last thing is that our reforms go much, far, go much farther beyond our personal salvation than the church today would like you to say or like you to think. I hear a lot of talk about evangelism today, that we live in the third, mo- I don't know if you knew this, the third highest population of non-Christians in the entire world live here in the United States. After uh, India and after China, we have the third highest population of non-Christians. I wonder if we are so focused on trying to save the lost that we have forgotten that the repentance actually leads us to systematic change. It's not always about evangelism. It's not always about salvation. Josiah, when he realizes there's nothing I can do to prevent the coming wrath, and I'm free from that wrath, he still acts. I want you to hear, chapter 22 ends with him being told, you're safe. You're going to be fine. He gets hit with a stray arrow in a time when the, the, I think it's like friendly fire. It's like somebody from his own group hits him with a stray arrow. He dies at 39 years old. It's sad. But he doesn't see Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations resorting to cannibalism. He doesn't have to witness that. And so when he knows that he's going to be free from the coming wrath, and yet he still chooses to act, we have to say, why? What does it matter? What does it matter if the kingdom of God, we believe the kingdom of God is eventually going to come down to earth and is going to wipe out all, and there's no crying, and you know, the Revelation 7, 9, and you know, everybody's going to be okay. Should that not still convict us, even though we have a faith and a hope that that's going to happen? Should that not also still convict us to lean into a hurting world and say it's not just about salvation, it's also about now? See, I want you to think for a moment 
of the perspective of some of those 11 and 12-year-old girls that were sold into ritual prostitution under the Asherah idolatry? Do you think that, they, that it mattered to them whether Josiah reformed it or just let it burn down? Do you think it mattered to them that they went home to their parents for however long it was until Jerusalem got sacked and Babylon took over? And you know what? Not everybody died. Probably some of them made it. Probably some of them lived full lives after that. Did it matter to them? what Josiah did? Did it matter to all of the firstborn children that were being sacrificed on the altar of Molech what Josiah did now? Did it matter to them even though Babylon would still fall or even though Jerusalem would still fall at the hands of Babylon? See, did it matter to them that Josiah reinstituted Passover which was the biblical theological framework by which they saw the Babylonian captivity? Had Josiah not reinstituted Passover, perhaps they would not have had the tools to persist for 70 years in captivity. Did it matter to them? Does it matter to the little guy? Does it matter to the enslaved? Does it matter to the innocents? Yes. It matters. And so it matters what we do, even when we believe that our salvation is secure. Even when we know we'll be saved. It matters. So as we go from this place, we take communion at the table in a moment with Phil. I want to offer you this. This is what it comes down to. If we're going to have ears to hear and receive what the text has for us, we got to start with reorientation. And when if we're truly reoriented, that's going to lead us to lament and repent because there are stuff in the church today that is idolatry. If you haven't seen it yet, it's there. I'm not going to list those things off because I don't want to get yelled off stage and dragged off and whatever. But there's stuff in the church today that's idolatry. Are we going to go to Scripture believing that we can find something new there, that our perspectives can be changed by a living God through the living Scriptures? And if we do find what's convicting to us, are we going to have the guts to cast it out? Because if we do, it matters. It matters for so many. It matters for our children, and it matters for those out there. It matters for the people who bed serves, and it matters for the people in mansions. Let's pray as we go to the table.